Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, an imaginative storm podcast offering you fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave. This show was aired first on WPVM-FM out of Asheville, North Carolina, WPVMFM.org. If you'd like to know more about community radio, you can always reach me, Nave, at imaginativestorm.com. And if you are interested in writing, Allegra Houston and I host an Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week gathering every Saturday, noon Eastern Time. It's always free. You can find the Zoom link at imaginativestorm.com. And thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, walterparks.com, if you're interested in more of Walter's music. Today, my guest is Ichno Vanny Kirk. He lives in South Africa. He's a photographer. He's a storyteller. He's a thinker, a visionary. He has a passion for leadership. He loves history, and he writes extensively for regional newspapers. I started this conversation by asking Ichno to talk about springtime. He lives in the Southern Hemisphere. Spring is coming for him in the Northern Hemisphere. Fall is coming for those of us who live above the equator. So that's where we pick up the conversation, Igno talking about springtime. I think spring is usually a time of hope and uh, new shoots and those kinds of things. In South Africa, um, we having a strange time politically, so I don't want to go too deep into that. After the work of Nelson Mandela, a lot has become undone by, by his party at the moment uh, because of corruption and those kinds of things. But I do also realize that we don't have to leave things up to politicians. I think nature plays its part. Spring is always coming. We've always got the choice to say, let's create our own green shoots. Let's make the difference. Let's start anew wherever we can. And that's where we're at at the moment. But it's lovely to have the sun come out because it, it was a long winter. I think it was the first winter outside after two years of COVID. You've probably had that same experience. Nelson Mandela, he's a man whom everyone knows, has at least his name and a little bit about him. You're a lot closer because you're there in South Africa. You grew up there. That's your home. You work there. You work in the arenas of business with and also creativity. And I would love for you to reflect a bit for us on your take on how Nelson Mandela has influenced you and it will be a little closer intake because you're you're there on the ground in south africa so very interesting Nave. i mean as a young boy nelson mandela was in prison and uh, well that was when i was a young boy he was a terrorist he was what we learned in history about uh, as a terrorist and then after 1990 when fw de Klerk made that famous speech in which he said that he would release all these so-called terrorist organizations. Um, Mandela came out of prison and here was this oldish, friendly man. But what happened afterwards, I think was unexpected on all spectra of South African life. I think Mandela had the gift of forgiveness. Of He, he learned a great deal. I mean, he, he was challenged by many challenges in terms of his own uh, working himself into the political life. Remember, he never ruled the country before, and all of a sudden he became part of a government of national unity, and then he became president. 
he was very much, according to historians, a, a kind of absent president in the sense of doing the administration of a president because he was busy, remember, rebuilding country, uh, finding people to sponsor after all the boycotts and sanctions he had to get money back into the country. But he had this magnificent aura, which everyone talks about. Uh, even the person who was his warden in prison uh, wrote a book about this man and, and, and what calm presence he had. And I think that presence came, and maybe on our line where, where you and I find ourselves with um, creativity, is that presence of forgiveness, forgiving yourself for the mistakes you make when you write a poem or those kinds of things. And I think he brought a lot of that and forgiveness and presence, and, and that was a great gift to the country, which, as I say, has sadly started, not started, it's already become undone by his own party. But we wanted that not to be the South African story, but that's the way it's going. And, and I think worldwide, globally, there are leadership challenges. I mean, as we speak, I think Britain's got a new uh, <laughs> person in charge there today after Boris Johnson. And, um, and, and in America, I know that during the pandemic, we watch a lot of news. We saw the crises. And I think it's, it's very much time for creative leadership. And I think it's in our town, um, the play, where it is said that often uh, we need to go and if we get to new places, we find the poets and the artists have been there before us. And I think it's a huge role for everybody listening with an, a creative inclination to realize it's not up to the leaders anymore. It's up to us citizens to make a difference. And we can now do it globally. Yeah, you and I are chatting thousands of miles apart. You work in the creative realms with business people, I understand. I live here in Taos, New Mexico, and also in Asheville. And most of the people I interact with are already committed to the creative arenas. They paint, they dance, they do all kinds of entrepreneurial work. So the entrepreneurial work, of course, is sculpting your creative dream into some reality that will earn you a living, et cetera, et cetera. When you work in the, in the business world, how do you interact with the the people that you work with, especially the ones who are not as inclined toward being open to the, the creative spheres? I think it's very much a question of building rapport. I don't think you walk into a corporate meeting immediately reading poetry, although I have done a bit of that. But once you get to know the audience, I think there's no real lines between business, the creative world. We've drawn up those lines, but every full-time poet has to put food on the table and every business person who who makes money if, if one can say it that way for a living has to to be in touch with their creative side and i think very often those boundaries have uh, have become so so strong and strict and 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 it's up to all of us to say no you know the the business leader i've worked with many ceos and and they often the most pleasant of people, but people think uh, they're unapproachable because of, of hierarchies and old-time leadership and those kinds of things. And I think it's lovely that, that we can access each other and that combination. Uh, I remember in one of the imaginative, imaginative storm sessions, we spoke about left brain, right brain, but I think all of us are full brain people. And we, we want to classify ourselves instead of saying, no, I'm a whole brain person and I, I love all sides of living. I just love some sides more than, than the others or some elements more than the others. When you talk about forgiveness, do you have some reflections on forgiveness as a general concept? And I, I'm thinking now about 
I will forgive you and you will forgive me. Does the same phenomenon happen when you forgive yourself or is it different? I think first of all, uh, what fascinates me about forgiveness is that old story they often tell that if I am not forgiving you, I am holding on to a piece of burning coal, hoping that you will burn because you might not even realize or know that I'm angry at you. And therefore, I carry it within me. So whatever I need to forgive, if I forgive, it's me that gets rid of the load. So if I say, Nave, I forgive you for what you've done. And you say, no, sorry, I didn't realize I'd done that to you. <laughs> you know, so I, how long did I now carry that, that hot uh, piece of coal in my hands? And I think forgiving ourselves more and more, uh, we're realizing that what we perceive as failure is often wonderful attempts in, uh, in trying something new. There's a, um, Dennis Waitley used to call failure fertilizer, fertilizer. He said it stinks, but it makes you grow. And I think that's, that's wonderful. And, and in business, uh, people like John Maxwell talk about failing forward. You know, and, and Zig Ziglar, I think, the old motivational used, uh, speaker used to talk about FAIL, first attempt in learning. So I think we overrate forgiveness. Um, something that's really interesting, my children are now at university age, and I attended a course with them on writing. Uh, it was an arts festival and we attended the course and people spoke about how therapeutic it was. And my daughter came to me and she said, but dad, why now do we have play therapy? And when people write, they say it's therapeutic. She said, why can't we just do it because we love it? And I think sometimes the realms of, of guilt and therapy have entered the art world in so many ways, but we must never forget that there's also the realms of, of playfulness and joy and, and being forgiven by yourself for the fact that we are sometimes tough on ourselves. Now, what's fascinating to me is when a kid goes to school, five years, six years old, we start marking their papers with a red pen. Now that's a color of blood. We, we, whatever they do wrong, we mark in red. We, we don't have a glitter glue green pen, for instance, when they do something well and surround it and draw a little heart because there's no time. There's only time to draw lines and, and, and yeah, in the color of blood. So after 12 years of schooling, I mean, we've had so many red lines in our lives that we need to, to draw our own green bubbles and hearts and joyful signals or signs. <laughs> I love that idea. I can think I think of all the red marks I've seen on my pages over over the years. And what kind of art do you work with? And did your art start first and then you moved into business or have you done both of them all along? Um, I think the first art and I think most of us do this art. We don't realize it is the art of storytelling. And I'll never forget. I was about five years old and sneaking from my room to catch my mom and dad. Uh, uh, you know, on what they were doing and what they were actually doing. They were in the sitting room. He had taken books out of the library. Now, I was a stay-at-home child because my brothers had gone to school in the mornings or they had to go to school. So what he did, he had an old tape recorder and he would read these library books into the tape recorder with a very old mic and my mother would sit next to him. And then the next morning, I would rewind the tape and listen to it and then rewind again as kids do, often listen to stories and, um, and, and it was in my dad's voice. Well, it was probably the first audio books uh, in, a, in a long time. But there is where I think all art start. I think the art of being human is the art of listening and being a story. And then photography came my way when I was 
at school, a friend of mine whose mother had lost her husband, we used to go to camera clubs and they took us out. And for some reason, the photography worked because I never thought that that would lead to leadership. Because if you the the kind of photography chess playing kids you, uh, in school, you're not necessarily the one that's going to get into a leadership position. But what photography had taught me was to be very much awake to the surroundings. And I think that brought me into leadership because these days, if you look at leadership, leaders need exactly what creative artists need. They need to be curious. Um, they need to be aware of what's happening. Now, that's where the artists take us. So if the leader doesn't tap into that artist within, they're not aware of the environment. They don't sense the possibilities. Steve Jobs, I mean, for instance, he crashed the music industry when he brought the iPod and he got ideas from the fashion industry to make it expensive and small. And he had what they call this reality distortion field where people couldn't believe what he was saying because he had the artistic mind to put the engineers onto creating something magnificent. And that's all of us. So the areas I work in, I think, over overlap. But photography is a wonderful, wonderful metaphor for leadership. We all talk about focus and about the bigger picture and about zooming in on stuff. And I've often used that in my presentations. And it's such a joy because then people can bring their cameras or their cell phones and play along with that. Do you think everyone is a leader? Because when I hear the word leadership, I often think, well, some of us are leaders and some of us are followers. And we hear the right brain, left brain. You say whole brain. Are we both leaders and followers? And is that true for all of us? Or are some people just natural leaders and other people follow? I think it's very much situational. As human beings, we want to once again compartmentalize and box things in. I think there's an English expression, you lead a life. I've never heard someone say you follow a life. Yeah. Uh, or you know, so, so that's, that's roughly it. And I think we all lead our own lives. Even if your choice is to follow, you are making the decision to follow, which means you lead. Now, John Maxwell, once again, used to talk about leadership. And he said, if you lead and no one's following, you're merely taking a walk. So many leaders all also, uh, uh, you know, I think they, they think they're leading, but they're not because they lead through a position of power. Real leadership might come from a follower who makes suggestions, who ideate, who, uh, who share, and who take care of other people who the leader might not be, even be aware of. When you go into a situation and you are teaching leadership, do you think of yourself as a person who teaches leadership or do you facilitate the idea of leadership? How do you approach it and how do you define it when you're working with a group? People often expect leadership to be something like vision, mission, values, strategy, uh, <laughs> tactics, and bottom line. And I think those are all out there in the leadership world. But when I teach leadership, I teach awareness. I teach playfulness because people, really good leaders, need to tap into their intuition. They need to know what's really going on in the world. And therefore, leadership to me is, is, is very often not what's contained in the world, uh, in the word. It's very often about, we think about the position when we talk about leadership and it's semantics. I mean, if, if I really can, <laughs> I can almost say, you know, if there's three ships on the ocean, the one closest to me is the leadership. And, and because that's, that's another way of it's semantics. True leaders have often been uh, very humble people. Um, when you think of Gandhi or mother Teresa and, 
but in different situations, they also had different ways of operating. So, so leadership is not a position that continues all the time. You might have a leader at work who goes home where he becomes a follower or she becomes a follower, uh, listening to her children, guiding her. But ultimately, uh, Nave, I think the greatest leadership is synergy. When a leader can stand back, uh, it's like Ben Zander, the orchestra conductor, often talks about uh, conductors, uh, they don't play any instrument, they don't make any noise. They just get the best out of the orchestra. And I think for me, a, a true leader is not the leader in the position, he's the person who manages to synergize something into a work of art. Do you define yourself as a leader? Do you see yourself as a, as a leader? I don't see myself as a leader in the corporate sense, but I do, my, do see myself as sometimes having to uh, take charge of situations. Uh, so I'm not, and I, I won't say I'm a leader because th that almost says that you're a leader in all situations. When I'm uh, with a group, I often want to facilitate. Sometimes you become a mentor to people. Sometimes you need a mentor. Now, if I have a mentor, who's the leader, the mentor or the mentee? Because who expects what? And once again, we fall into the trap of, of words and their limited meaning. And that's why I love the work which you and Allegra are doing and, and your work on poetry, because poetry expands words. It's expanding ideas. And that's what leadership is. We at the brink of having to expand. So, yes, I'm a leader in scouting how poetry fits into leadership. But then you go back and you find that people like David White and others have done that a long time ago. And I've already worked with that. So, no, then you're not a leader in terms of a brand new edit. But the way in which we work and what we bring to the table and our own unique stories make all of us leaders, I think. On our Saturday morning calls, our imaginative storm calls, you're there almost every week. What are you getting out of that experience? Because I know you're a seasoned creative person. You do creative work all the time. You facilitate it. You lead it. Sometimes you follow it. Uh, in the calls on Saturday morning, I tend to observe you as a quiet presence. And then when you say something, everybody listens. I think that's a good version of leadership. What do you get out of these calls? Why are you engaging in this imaginative process with us? I think first of all, and this is perhaps more about life than leadership, is community. And I think you've created a wonderful community, and it's such an open community that you have created there with people sharing, people willing to share. Uh, if you ask a question, people are open. Then the second thing about that community is, and this is what all leaders try to achieve, by the way, when I spoke about synergy. What you've achieved there is there's no judgment. There's synergy. People come together and literally synergistically, they work with words that each of them bring into the room. And then they write with those words and then they get feedback. Well, not feedback. They almost get, if I could call it, uh, what shall we call it? Uh, blessings from other people on their work. And you, so, so that there's no better form of leadership than what you actually do at the imaginative storm. And then afterwards, when we have those conversations, I have loved to take the questions into those conversations because Remember now where they used to say that we had the era of production and there was the hunters and the fishermen and then it was production and then it was service and then it was technology. 
we're now in the era of wisdom, I think, where we're trying to figure out what wisdom is. And I think what uh, imaginative storm does is there's a lot of wisdom in the room. You are something about fairy tales or mythical living, and someone will have something to share. And they don't share as if they know it all. It's an investigative process. So once again, synergistic. So I think what you have in an imaginative storm is a wonderful sense of leadership. I mean, you and Allegra give the boundaries, but then there's no leader in the room. That's quite true. There's no single leader in the room. And yet when people speak up, they tend to take a leadership role, an influencer role. And it's really interesting to watch this community. And it's true with other communities as well. We're not communities as well. We're not just talking about this imaginative storm community. It's interesting to watch how people, when they're willing to let their influence unfold without some kind of strong arm agenda, it does seem to move like a forest living like a living forest or something and i love that about those exchanges i think those exchanges are wonderful and, and as you say there's, there's no leader everyone takes up the role but you still have to hold the space i mean if if the conversation gets challenging uh, where people might be uh, very much different in views from each other I think that ability to have that calm inner sense of holding the space where people differ and in, in, in normal conversations in corporates under high pressure, they might fight each other. Yeah, there's that space that's held that said, okay, I listen to you and then you listen to me. We had a conversation about different forms of stereotyping and judgments against stereotypes a while ago. And I loved how the space felt safe. Remember now, it's really, uh, if, if you consider what actually happened there, you had a global audience of people on a, on a sensitive topic, two people were debating, but there was that sense of calm. And I think, well, maybe you brought it, but there's always, as you say, someone who can step in and then have that sense of calm. And I think that's part of the community to know the rules. Now in corporate, in companies, people talk about the culture. And I think you've created a culture. Now, the culture is very often related to the stories people tell. So the stories that go out about Imaginative Storm is about these wonderful conversations. Most companies, people are working, you know, from coffee shops. The pandemic has done a wonderful job for company and corporate culture where people used to travel to work every morning and back and in the afternoons and they got angry in traffic and angry in traffic back home. Uh, one of our futurists used to say, our grandchildren says one day, why did you really all go to work at the same time and all travel back at the same time? And, and I would like to ask the naughty question. There was there no poet who could say how insane this was. And then along came COVID and all of a sudden people realized, whoa, um, we don't have to work the way we did. Now, these are intelligent human beings, but why aren't we changing those lines of isolation which we wrap around ourselves and that's not leadership leadership's awareness openness synergy and then that willingness to come back to imaginative storm to to create a culture of uh, let it flow let, let's let's see where this goes to a river knows it's going to end in the sea but it flows through marvelous uh, passages of countryside and sometimes there's rocks in the way but that just makes it sink 
Well, I, that's absolutely true, and I I love that um, that that thinking. And I just it just occurred to me for those of you out there listening to this conversation, and we're referencing the imaginative storm. I thought it m- might be wise to just give you a quick brief on what that is. The imaginative storm is a method Allegra Houston and I have been using to help people write. And yet it's more than a method that that helps people write. It's a, a method that gives people permission to allow their imaginations to play, to romp around, to enjoy, and most especially to be messy. And we are encouraging people to play in the mess of their imaginative processes while at the same time allowing their rational minds to join the party. So we're not telling people to get out of their rational minds. We're not saying to you, drop your rational mind. What we're saying is let the two work together. If no, you talked about the whole brain. And this is a concept of letting the rational mind and the imaginative mind work together. And the imaginative mind leads the dance with the rational mind. So that's why when people come on the calls on Saturday morning, we stir up the imagination. We storm it up a bit. And when that happens, the rational minds on the call feel good because they now have something to work with. So just for you all listening out there, that's what we're referencing when we talk about the imaginative storm. In some ways, we're talking about writing. Sure. But we're all talk- also talking about the landscapes of our psychologies, the environments in which we live, play, and work in, and how we interact with those environments on a minute-by-minute time beat. And I'd like to add to that, Nava, and I think you, you're not only bringing in the whole brain, you're bringing in the gut, because we often write from the subconscious. And if you take a pen in your hand, I think it's Julia Cameron in a conversation I heard you 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 moving your body you actually letting your subconscious do the talking now how often are we reading about lead from the gut and live on your gut feel or your um intuition and i think it's awakening the intuition as well there are many areas uh, of our bodies of our psyches of our <laughs> of our entire holistic uh, beings that that gets touched in those kinds of ways. We had a discussion, and, and I think it's relevant here as well, but about the inner child that might live with us or might not live with us because maybe uh, maybe age is just something sitting outside. And sometimes when you write like a five-year-old, you are a five-year-old, and then you change into a wise old sage and you are a wise old sage. For that two, three minutes at least, you can be and you can journey into beings that you love to, to journey into. And we do talk a fair amount on the calls about the inner child, and or at least that comes up. And what we're trying to say, and we talked about that on Saturday when we were all on the call, the adult grows up. We are full-fledged adults. We have grown up. We are mature. I often hear people in their 50s and 60s say, well, I'll never grow up. And I will often say, well, I hate to break the news to you. You did grow up, whether you like it or not. And this idea of the inner child, I like to think of the inner child, and yet I like to think of it not so much as still a child. As I grow up, the childlike sensibilities inside of me mature. So I have a memory of when I was a child. I have an inner memory of my childhood. 
I wonder if the inner child is always a child or how does that define itself? What do, what do you think? I, I think uh, maybe the inner child, like leadership, has gotten so much wording around it that we've got a specific concept. Maybe we should talk about the playful me. The playful me arrives, uh, or the playful I, I'm not sure what the grammatical context there would be, but, and then the serious me, and then the wise me, and I can play and I have conversations with all of these, and I, so, so it's not an inner child, it's the playful me, which acts like a child, and it sits inside of me. So yes, if you want to call it the inner child, that is it. Something when we talk about uh, that playfulness, Fred Donaldson used to do a lot of work on play uh, in the 80s. And uh, one of the things which he said, which a friend of mine, Bruce Copley, uh, often told me as I, as I was playing with how to, how to make training interactive, uh, he said, is every victory is a funeral. I think about that. Every victory is a funeral. We're in a hyper-sport uh, competitive world. And what Donaldson taught in the same way that the guy who spoke about the inner game of tennis, Tim Galway, said, is when you play against a brilliant uh, opponent, it's not about you beating the opponent. What happens in a wonderful game is that that opponent brings the best out of you. And therefore, you thank him at the end of the game because he or she has brought the best out of you. They've made you play better, done things which you wouldn't have believed you could do because they, they forced you your boundaries. But every victory where you gloat because you've beaten the people is a funeral because someone has lost. And in that losing, when you gloat, you lose too. Exactly. Because I always say you need to, uh, you know, we get bad losers, but we also get bad winners. And people always talk about, yeah, don't be a bad loser or a sad loser, but also don't be a bad winner. Be an appreciative winner because whenever you win, it, it shouldn't mean someone else has lost. It should mean the boundaries have been pushed. And it's like Dwayne Dyer used to say, don't be better than anyone else. Be better than yesterday. The measurement is against your previous self, your growing self. When you talk about grownups, I need to grow on a daily basis and learn because then I can be better than yesterday, which often means I am more grateful. I am more, what shall I say, content than yesterday. It also might mean that I'm angrier than yesterday if I was too calm in many ways. But I need to grow and say, am I better than yesterday? Because I'm not, I will never be better than anyone else because once again, we come into the realm of story and, um, and story, everyone's got a different story from the moment that you're, you're, you conceived that there's new cells and there's, there's genetics that plays a role in creating this marvelous story called you. Interesting. If we started to think of our losses, like I lost the match. Oh, I feel bad. I lost. Oh, that's not good. What if we valued the loss as much bigger as a much bigger win than the win? Not that you discount the win as a loss, but what if the loss equaled the value of the win in terms of both being a kind of win? I think you lose the match only if you lose yourself during the match. If you lose control of uh, what it is that you want to be in life. Now, a match is a test. They often call test matches. 
it and that's why you go into it you you want to test your patience your ability to play the ball your uh, wonderful hand eye coordination now let's say the hand eye coordination is not working yes you you might be angry at yourself everybody has to force and drive themselves i think it's Dewitt jones that photographer who used to work with national geographic who used to say says i'm am i the best in the world or the best for the world now, even in losing, I might be the best for the world. And the other person might be the best in the world, but might not be the best for the world because of their value system and what they teach kids. And uh, what happens is, but well, we're now talking about sports, but in many ways is people use illegal substances and those kinds of things. They, they mess with their own health. Now, ultimately, we've got a body. We've got a, you know, that's what we have. That's what we need to take care of our, our own uh, spiritual, physical being. Now, I think you lose if you mess around with that. And sports and creativity are such great opportunities to actually grow that into something, into something, if I can call it spiritually winning. That's not church spiritual, but we, well, someone used to say we are spiritual creatures having a human experience, I think. Now, that means if my soul sits around me, I can expand my soul all the time. <laughs> Speaking of expansion of the soul, I want to just go back to this idea of wisdom. And when we were on one of our Saturday morning morning calls, six or eight months ago, you were there, and you said to Allegra and to me, why don't you two facilitate a workshop on landscapes? I would like for you to reflect on the idea of landscapes and wisdom, how those two go together. I think we all grow up in landscapes, but we we might live next door to each other and perceive the landscape completely different. Now, where does that wisdom, let's say I look at the landscape and I appreciate it and I a story about it and you just hate the landscape. From the moment that you walk out there, you, you hate your childhood. We, we might have the same kind of experience and there are many reasons for people having different experiences. But what's in the landscape? A writer like Pat Conroy, for instance, talking about the American South. I mean, you could sense that the landscape had formed the man. And then I started thinking back about the landscapes I grew up in. Now, we all have the idea of the person coming from the rural area and coming to the big city. The, the stories are there about that. The city slickers, the, you know, the, those kinds of stories. But our landscape, our environment what you see around you if it's peaceful why do people put flowers in their kitchen the fascinating thing to me is where i grew up in the eastern free state part of south africa where it's a beautiful area especially in autumn or fall and there's these wonderful yellow sunrises and sunsets and i could never imagine that anyone could not have a love for beautiful things if you grew up in that landscape. The misty mornings, the horses standing outside. It has to bring something into the soul. The thing is, we choose our landscapes. And in German, they often talk about Heimweh and Fernweh. When you're at home, you long for something far away. You look at postcards and pictures and you want to be there. And when you're far away, you've got Heimweh again. You want to be home again. Sometimes I think we don't appreciate the landscapes enough. And there's also the, the inner landscape and the outer landscape. Coming back to leadership, what do I do if the landscape doesn't suit me? South Africa is now full of potholes. Uh, traffic lights are broken. The, the, the government's a mess. There's corruption all over. Landscape doesn't suit me. I need to do something. I can either move 
or I need to get the community involved and repair these things. And so many people will say, but that's not our job. That's government's job. We pay them. We pay taxes. Well, it's your landscape. You're going to live in it. So if it's not your job, it's fine. But if it's your landscape, it might be your job. So what are some of the things you are doing in your community to improve the landscape? I mean, Bloemfontein, which is about 400 kilometers from Johannesburg, I think to each his own, to each his own with talent. I was never good at handcrafting stuff at school, but do, do a lot of writing for local papers, um, observing and making people aware of what's happening, teaching where I can uh, do lots of motivational stuff. And I think the big thing is to try and grow leaders. I often work with schools and teachers. If you don't have positive, passionate teachers, everything we talk about falls apart. Now, now talk about leadership. I think when we, when we start talking about teaching, the passionate teacher is never the principal. Well, the principal might become a passionate teacher, but then they become the principal of the school and then they're out of touch with the kids. A true leader of the classroom is a person who doesn't convey knowledge. Knowledge you can get on YouTube, but passion you can only get from a teacher who's, who's, who opens up the world for you. I think you might have one or two passionate teachers who you remember. Sadly, most people have got about three, four, five, one or two, but it's not like every 40 teachers on every staff you've ever been to are the passionate ones who you remember. My teachers did cheer me on, some of them, but not many. Mentors, teachers, maybe that's the magic. Those are the magic wands of the world. Nava, you've memorized more than 600 poems. Do you know how many mentors you've got living in your head? We, we forget teachers are not necessarily human beings. It could be the words of a poem. It could be something. A friend of mine, Dorian Horov, uses stories, and he was imprisoned in Zimbabwe for some a crazy reason uh, he was imprisoned. He had to tell himself stories right through the night because the stories are what sustains him. Now, what does a mentor do? They take you forward. And sometimes when you're in a hole, they, they help you out. That's true. I mean, when you think about Robert Frost, cl classic poem, The Road Not Taken, everybody who refers to that, most people do know that poem. They think the last line, and I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. And often people will say that proudly, oh, I took the one less traveled by, as if nobody else did. The mentorship in that poem, The Road Not Taken, there were two roads, and you could pick either one, and which, whichever one you choose will be less traveled by. There is no point of pride in saying, I took the one less traveled by, because every road you take is less traveled, because you haven't walked on it yet. That's the challenge is we think there's two roads. There are plenty of roads. I think that's the whole theme of this conversation. When people listen, I hope that we're opening up minds to say, well, leadership's not necessarily one thing. It could be so many wonderful historical figures. You'd often recite something based on something you hear in the moment. This is now calling me to bring it to life once again. And you bring your mentor to the stage and, and that mentor resides in your head. You've got your mentor on call and not only for yourself, but for your audience. You, you can share the mentor's wisdom with the audience. You mentioned the playful I arrives, the playful me arrives. Wouldn't it be interesting if we could all say the playful us arrives? or the playful us arrive. That would be the accurate grammar. The playful us would be all of those things that are inside, not just the playful me arrives, but us, 
everything. Here we are back to all those mentors. And, and the playful us would be the inner child, the rebellious teen, the wise old sage. It's all sitting inside. So, so and, 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 and once again, it's that power of imagination. Every one of us is a nation full of people. And I think our biggest, best faculty is imagination. Sometimes people say what is the most powerful nation in the world is imagination. What does it mean? image a nation this is an image of a nation all the nation sits with uh, with the teens with the babies with the inner childs with the whole thing uh, once again nothing new if you look at the poets they've been there we we're trying to figure out the inner child and those things but Waltman said, you know, I contain multitudes. Once again, something that's often discussed on the imaginative storm is curiosity. That natural curiosity, Michael Gelb wrote a book on Leonardo da Vinci, how to think like Leonardo da Vinci. And the first element that he took out of everything that da Vinci did was what he called curiosity. He was immensely curious. He wanted to know. He wanted to find out how things worked. It wasn't as if he'd given up on something. If, if he didn't understand it, he'd do drawings. And he'd write in his journals what he was thinking, the power of someone's imagination. That power came from Da Vinci being curious. And it's that thing which Whitman says, do I contradict myself? Very well, then I contradict myself. And I think it's our right to contradict ourselves. It's synergy. We want to find a, a third alternative, and we can't do it if we don't have contradictory thoughts, if we just think linearly. And when I'm thinking of images, I'm thinking of the newborn child. Most children are born with sight. Occasionally, you have children who are born without sight. Most children start out with their eyes opening upon arrival, and they see images. I understand when a child starts to view the world from the very beginning, it's a black and white world, and color starts to fill in a little later down the line, but the first few images a child sees are black and white images. And we start out with images. We start out defining our existence by what we see and how we categorize what we see in ways that will allow us to eventually understand it. So it makes sense that imagination and images do sit with us commune with us from the very first moment we make our cries. A friend of mine's got a story structure, which he often uses when he tells stories. He says, it starts with a womb, everything's going okay. Then there's a wound, something goes wrong. Then there's the wonder, the journey, the wondering. And then there's the wonder, the W-O-N-D-E-R, the, the wonder. If we go through all those processes and we find the wonder, it's wonderful, <laughs> literally wonderful. But to come back to what you were saying about the child and imagination being the first things, remember that child doesn't have any language, can't communicate with language. In uh, literally science at university, we had one sentence, which I'll never forget. It says, language is a secondary modeling system, which parasites on the true nature of reality. So language is secondary. When I say to you a tree, you imagine a willow tree, but I'm talking about an oak tree. So that's secondary. It's a modeling system. It parasites on reality. So once again, if I use language only, I lose awareness because language is just a secondhand system to tell about the world. Imagination, intuition, uh, creativity are areas within us that sees without the eyes and without the words. When we embrace that, it starts to make a kind of universal sense that allows at least for me to fit into it in a way that seems very productive. And I think uh, we often confuse 
productivity, thinking it's a business thing. And then when I'm writing, I'm not productive. I mean, a writer is damn productive to find those words and edit the words and those kinds of things. My dad used to recite a little poem in which it said, uh, we are the music makers and we are the dreamers of dreams. But then he ends with, yet we are the movers and shakers of the world forever, it seems. Now, when he talks about music makers and dreamers of dreams, I'm not thinking about physical music. I think it's about marching to your own drumbeat. The moment that you start listening to others, you're not leading your life anymore. You are following commands. Those commands are necessary to grow you, but you need to also find yourself within the growth process. And then to march to your own drumbeat, you should love the music that you play because once again, my dad was in World War II and he told us about one night they had a march somewhere in Egypt or Italy. And he said they were dead tired. And then out of nowhere, a band arrived and they started playing music. He said, you can't believe if the music starts playing how your body picks up and you can go again because there's rhythm, there's life, there's some other input than the input of being tired. And I think, by the way, that's what we all need more of, the input of poetry, the input of joy. We read so many bad things. When we write history, we use newspaper headlines, which are usually the worst news in the country. That becomes history. We don't go to the letter columns or see what the people did. So I think so often in the era which we chase productivity, we are reading books on business and those kinds of things. What's required is a new look at what the innocent poetry are saying, where the whole world is talking about the chaotic world and the speed of light and how we need to move faster. If you want to be aware of what's going on, you need to pause and you need to find something in the slowness and where you find your own joy, because I think people have lost their own joy. The, uh, the world advertises where you can find joy. So you go on a holiday, you buy it on your credit card, do those kinds of things. True joy comes from listening to your, your gut, your mind, your whole body. People can create their own communities, but live in community where you're happy because there's so much unhappiness and challenges outside. You want to reflect back on your life and say, it was worth it all. I'd love to have the same journey again, rather than all those deathbed things we read where people say, I'm so sorry, I never tried this, or I did that, or I didn't do that. You know, we have arrived at guess where, the top of the hour. And I just wanted to say thank you for taking all this time. Before you go, please tell people how they can get in touch with you. Igno, I-G-N-O. Igno van Niekerk, I-G-N-O. V-A-N-N-I-E-K-E-R-K, -E which might be difficult to remember. So if you want to send an email, it's it's much easier to send to ignophoto, I-G-N-O, and then P-H-O-T-O at gmail.com. And then also I've written a book, Light on Leadership, which is about photography and leadership and storytelling about the whole combination. It's out on Amazon. People can purchase Thanks so much for this conversation, Nava. It's, it's always wonderful uh, conversing with you and, uh, and uh, sharing in those wonderful, wonderful mentors that you keep in your head and listening to what they have to say sometimes. <laughs> and there you go, my friends. Thus concludes my conversation with Ichno Kirk. Since our theme ended up being about landscapes, interior and exterior, 
and we referenced The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. I'd like to recite The Road Not Taken just so you can have a reference for what Ichno and I were talking about. So here's The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood, and I looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth, and then I took the other, as just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy, and wanted wear. Though, as for that, the passing there had worn them really about the same, and both that morning equally lay in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere, ages and ages hence. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost like Igno and I said in the conversation we just had, most people think the point of the poem, The Road Not Taken, is the last line. And I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Well, the point of the poem is, the idea in the poem is that you have a choice. Which road do you take? Really, it matters because your choices are fateful. Whatever choice is you make about any set of circumstances will direct you for the rest of your life, sometimes in really dramatic ways, other times in insignificant ways that maybe you don't notice. Nonetheless, every second you live offers you that opportunity to take a, make a choice, to walk down a, a different road, to go this way or that way. And, of course, whatever road you go down, that road's never been walked before because you're the only one who can walk it. I know there must be a few country songs about that. And if not country songs, you can probably write a little essay or a poem about choices you've made and roads you've gone down. I mean, wouldn't it be interesting to make a list of all of the choices you've made, say 20 of them, and then categorize those choices based on how faithful they were? Most choices you make in the moment don't seem all that dramatic. I remember once when I was in high school, I was walking out from a day in school, it could have been a Wednesday, and I walked past the gymnasium and looked into the gym and realized that it was college day. Representatives from around the area were there pitching their colleges to the students in the high school where I went to high school, Inca High School, actually, in Asheville area. It was a long time ago, 1968, actually. And as I was hurrying past to the parking lot to get in my car and drive away for an afternoon of freedom, I always loved the idea of being free from all constraints, I looked inside the gymnasium and saw all the tables and thought, well, it can't hurt to walk through. That was my faithful decision, and it was a good one. It was a momentary decision. It didn't seem like it was fateful at the moment. What could it hurt? Walk through the gym, say hello to a few friends, go home. Well, I stopped in front of the table for Brevard Junior College, which is now Brevard College in Brevard, North Carolina. And I said, well, I 
don't have a very good grade point average, and I'm really not sure if I would even qualify to come to college. And the representative said, well, we have academic probation. We could let you in if you wanted to come. All you have to do is fill out the application forms, take the SATs, do a few other things, and apply, and, and we'll let you know if you can come or not. Well, I walked away thinking, hmm, why not? I had the brochures and went home, filled out the application. I submitted it, and lo and behold, they let me in on academic probation, and rightfully so, my grades weren't that great. And because of that one fateful choice, my entire life was different. And even to this day, because of my experiences at Brevard College, uh, my best friend who lives in Paris, John Van Hasselt, and I did a show not long ago about John and my, my love of Paris. And if I hadn't made that fateful decision all those years ago to take a right and walk through the gym, would never have had Paris. I would never have had the life that I've had. Now, there's your road. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. Or a thousand roads diverge every second, really. Which one do you take? So if you list 20 faithful decisions, usually not that dramatic, and then you build those decisions out in a story, you will find some insight that maybe you haven't thought of. So the landscapes of our our lives, the landscapes of our emotional, psychological, spiritual interiors, the landscapes of, of what's in front of us, what's around us, of our communities. And on that note, I would like to say thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, an imaginative storm podcast offering you fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I am your host, James Nave. This show was aired first on WPVM-FM out of Asheville, North Carolina, WPVMFM.org if you'd like to know more about community radio. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you would like to know more about Walter music. If you'd like to email me, nave at imaginativestorm.com. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. And join us any Saturday morning, noon Eastern time for our Imaginative Storm writing prompt of the week gathering on Zoom. I host it with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. She and I have been doing this for well over a year now. It's always free. You can find the Zoom link at imaginativestorm.com and you will also find many other resources for writing at imaginativestorm.com so we would love to have you on that call and feel free to invite your friends it's a good time we spend an hour working with our writing and then another 30 minutes or so talking about the, the work we've done ideas that pop up during the first hour so thank you so much for tuning in to Twice Five Miles Radio and being part of the Imaginative Storm writing community. And please do come back again soon. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.